All right, Genesis 49 here this morning. Genesis chapter 49. Nearly done with the book of Genesis here. One more, one more week after today, but uh, almost got this thing wrapped up here. Um, I'll be honest with you, this is a chapter that if I was covering this in Sunday school, uh, this would probably take me two to three weeks. Um, I, I love this chapter dearly. Uh, I have liked it for, for quite some time. It, it's covering such a wide range of, of, of things that are going on uh, in Israel's future. Uh, you could tie it, we, we, tie, we did already with a call to worship, tied to Deuteronomy 33, starts to build on top of there. Uh, you can just continue to progress. Uh, we could take each of these tribes, we could run them through Genesis, or run them through Judges, Joshua, Chronicles, and just the pictures that start to emerge are, are just absolutely fascinating. Uh, if you were with me in Revelation a few weeks back, we looked at the tribe of Dan, right? Just looking at the tribe of Dan and, and what is going on with the tribe of Dan over the course of, of Israel's history is fascinating in and of itself, right? And now you have all 12 that you're talking about here. So this is, uh, this is something that we could spend an awful lot of time on, and uh, you would like to eat at some point, I think. I think you would like to eat at some point. So, uh, so we're not going to deal with all of the tribes here this morning. As we look in 49, uh, Jacob is... Is prophesying. Uh, some of your uh, some of your headers in, in your in your chapters, uh, you may have that he is blessing his children. Um, that's overly broad, uh, because some of these are blessings. Some of these, uh, if that's a blessing, I don't want it. Uh, th- there are some things that are going on here, and we'll look at a couple of those. Uh, you don't want to be blessed like that, right? That's not what you want. Uh, but Jacob is more broadly pronouncing uh, prophecy. Uh, I think would be the better word of, of looking at. He is he is making pronouncements about what is going to happen. Uh, to his sons and to his sons' descendants uh, there on out, uh, going off into the future. And he's looking very far. Okay? He, he's not just talking about you and your sons and your grandsons and then we're, we're done. Uh, Jacob is looking far into the future. And so this goes beyond something uh, that maybe a father would bless his son with at the end of his life. This, this goes beyond that. There, there is an element of prophecy to this. Uh, there is no way that, that Jacob could possibly know these kind of things were going to be taking place unless the Spirit of God was, was speaking through him at a moment like this. So uh, there, is, there is a lot that is, that is going on here with that. Um, for our purposes today, uh, we're only going to look at five of the twelve. And I'm going to choose the, the ones that Jacob is, is dealing with uh, the most here. Uh, but we're only going to choose five of the twelve. Uh, again, that's not to say that what happens to Zebulon is not interesting or what happens to Issachar is not interesting. Uh, it's just for our purposes to, to be able to draw a line somewhere um, we're going to deal with, um, with just five of them. Uh, this chapter, as it, as it unfolds, is following a, a certain logic to it. Uh, as you work your way through, and as you look at each of the sons as they are, as they are mentioned in this passage, uh, Jacob is actually logically grouping them together. Uh, he's dealing with the sons of each of his wives in order. So he's not dealing with these sons necessarily in a chronological order or, or, or their place in terms of when they entered it in the family. Uh, but he's dealing with the, the sons by their, by their wives and by their, by their mothers, if you're looking at it from the son's perspective. Uh, so Leah's sons are being dealt with first. We're going to spend more time with them than anyone else. Uh, uh, Bilhah's sons come after that. Uh, Zilpha's uh, sons come after that. And finally, we have Rachel's two, two sons, uh, Joseph and, and Benjamin, that come last. So if you're looking for order there, that's by and large the order. Uh, within uh, those, those groupings, by, by, the, by the children of each of those wives, he is by and large moving chronologically, uh, with the exception of Zebulon there in, in verse 13. It's the only one that he, he kind of moves out of order, and, and there's nothing that we can really figure out about that. 
Uh, but by and large, Jacob is, is working through these sons in a fairly methodical uh, way that he is handling it. Um, chances are very good. We know the history of Jacob. And we know the history of his wives. Uh, he's probably saving the best for last when he saves Rachel's uh, uh, sons at the very end, right? Those are the ones that are, that are nearest and dearest to his heart. Uh, Joseph is particularly the one that has been nearest and dearest to his heart. Uh, and Joseph gets about as much attention, more attention than, than everyone else combined. Uh, and then Benjamin follows. So there's, uh, there's certainly things that you can see while you see the prophecy uh, that, is, that is coming out here. You also see Jacob coming out here, right? He is, uh, Jacob is, is very much present in, in this chapter and, and, and working through there. So uh, Genesis chapter 49 this morning, let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll look at the, the three major themes that we've got running through here this morning. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your scripture as a whole, uh, Father. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who is, who is evident in these passages, as a God who is able to call things uh, from, from the very distant past, as, even if they are not. Uh, Father, we look at these prophecies that are, that are present here in this passage, and we're blown away uh, by, by uh, how far Jacob, quote-unquote, sees. Uh, but really, it's not what Jacob is seeing. It's what you are planning. It, it is what you have already purposed that you are going to do. And Jacob and his sons are merely beneficiaries of that. They are, uh, they are, they are channels uh, of that in, in the simplest form in many ways. And, and it's a blessing to, to, be, to be a part of that, uh, for sure. Uh, but it is also a blessing for us as we, as we come along from behind. Father, as we come many, many years after that, and we find ourselves being beneficiaries of that as well. Uh, Father, that is an immense blessing. It is an immense privilege. Uh, and Father, I pray that as we look at these promises here today, Father, we, we see how those uh, continue to impact us, uh, the way that we are blessed, the way that we are similarly uh, blessed in many ways uh, as these sons are here today. So, so Father, give us grace, uh, Father, to, to think through this passage, uh, to see your hand, uh, to see your purposes, to see your grace, uh, Father, in these boys' lives and in our lives as well. So give us grace for this, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. So as we look at five of the sons here this morning, uh, we're going to look at Reuben, uh, Levi, Simeon, Judah, uh, and, uh, and Benjamin here this morning, uh, and pardon me, and Joseph here this morning. As we, as we look at these, at these five sons, uh, there, are, there are three major themes that, that I want to highlight. Uh, we've got the theme of judgment that has taken place. Uh, we've got a theme of redemption that is present, and we've got a theme of providence that is present. Uh, these these themes are we, we find with these with these sons as uh, as as Jacob deals with with them together. So I want to take a look at them tribe by tribe. We'll, we'll group them together where we can, uh, and, and we'll see what we have here. Uh, ver- chapter forty nine. Let me just start reading uh, verses one through four, just to, to get us to get us moving here. Uh, chapter forty nine, verse one. Jacob summoned his sons and said, "Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come." Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, that you defiled it. He went up to my couch. In chapter 49, verse 1, uh, Jacob is, is gathering all of his children together for, for one last time. This is, his, uh, this is his final moment to speak to his children uh, and, and he is getting ready to pass away. In fact, we're not even going to cover it, but the final five verses of this chapter is, is Jacob passing away. And he is, he is off the scene at this point. Now, again, it's hard to say, and we talked about this a little bit last week, it's hard to say exactly where some of this is, is falling into line. Uh, we noticed in chapter 48 last week that Jacob was not doing well in chapter 48. 
right? He's, he's, it's already everything that he can do to get his strength together just to sit up in the bed. He's, he's not doing well. So I wouldn't be surprised if this could have come a little bit earlier, even perhaps before uh, chapter, chapter 48 in, in some way. Um, it, it's, it's just hard to say. But at some point, Jacob is gathering all of his children together, and he's going to pronounce blessings on them. He's going to pronounce prophecy over them in terms of what their futures are going to look like there. Right? And so he brings them all together one last time. Uh, I do wonder if everyone is president at one time and they're all hearing these individual things that are spoken to them, what do they think? Right? Because some of these are really good. Some of them, oh yeah, I came away pretty good. Some of them, are, oh man. And everyone's, oh, well, glad I'm not him. Right? You have to wonder a little bit about what is going on in these boys. If you're sitting there in the room, you're listening to these things, what are they, uh, what are they saying? But, but Jacob, Jacob has the floor. Uh, Jacob, all eyes are on him and he's, and he's pronouncing everything that, that is going to be coming to pass. You'll notice there in verse 3 that he starts with Reuben. And Reuben is the, the, the most natural place to start off with. Reuben is the firstborn, right? And, and Jacob even makes reference to that in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, right? He is, he is the first person that you would start off with. He's also the first son of Leah, right? So, so by every account of the way they were ordering this, by every account of who Reuben is, Reuben is the one that you're going to start off with here. And Reuben is one of those individuals that does not get one of the best blessings that you could possibly ever have, okay? Uh, Reuben is one that probably, you know, didn't walk away happy on, on this one here, right? Uh, Jacob starts off, Reuben, you are my firstborn, right? My might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. So far, so good, right? This is, this is who Reuben is. And, and when you read verse 3, this is exactly what you would have expected to be pronounced on Reuben. He is the firstborn. By all accounts, uh, Reuben should be the one that is leading this family. Uh, Reuben should be the one that is getting a double blessing. If anyone's going to be getting a double blessing, it should be Reuben. Uh, Reuben is the one that, that represents uh, the, the, the future of, of this tribe in every conceivable sense. He's the firstborn. He's the, he's the natural leader for this family. He's the one that everyone should be looking for and, and, and getting behind as, as Jacob is looking to pass off the scene. But that's not what's going to happen, right? He is preeminent in dignity, and he is preeminent in power. End of verse 3. But verse 4, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence. Right? No sooner does Jacob pronounce that. No sooner does Jacob announce, Reuben, this is who you are. Then he just comes and he just takes the rug out right from under his feet. Right? You do not get to have this privilege. You do not get to have those rights. You do not get to have what you would naturally expect to be coming to you. Right, And the reason is because of the end of verse 4, the middle of verse 4, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Jacob has been quiet, but Jacob has not forgotten what Reuben did. Uh, back in Genesis 35 and verse 22, uh, we saw this, and it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. A very small line that got entered into chapter 35, just, just, just barely there in the middle of everything else that's going on. They're moving over here, and they're going over there, and they're doing this. Just a small, tiny line, and, and there comes this, this condemnation of Reuben for what he had done. He went in and slept with his, his father's concubine. Right now, uh, there is some theory that that perhaps this was a power play on, on Reuben's part. That there was a some kind of a uh, some kind of a tradition that he was tapping into there. That uh, that this was something that maybe was commonly accepted in some situations by the firstborn. Uh, but but 
when you read Genesis 35, 22, it doesn't read that way, right? And by the time you get here to chapter 49, it really does not read that way, right? This was, this was not something that Jacob found to be acceptable. This is not something that is right, right? But Reuben did this. But even in chapter 35, verse 22, the, after it is mentioned, there is, there is just silence, there, there is no consequences, seemingly, that happens to Reuben. Uh, there seems to be no, no pronouncement of judgment that takes place. There's no discipline, seemingly, that takes place. It seems as if it is something that is simply kind of quietly swept under the rug, and we're, just, we're not going to really talk about it. Now, you can perhaps see signs of it coming up as you move throughout the rest of the book. You look at the way that Reuben seems to try to kind of take leadership. You see the way that he kind of tries to kind of jump out ahead of a few things. You maybe could construe some of that as Reuben trying to get back in Father's good graces, right? He's lost it. He knows he's lost it. So maybe if I can just kind of make some gestures, then maybe I can get back. But even those are awful, right? Those don't work out very well. Reuben can never seemingly get out from underneath of what he did in chapter 35 and verse 22. And in verse 4 of chapter 49, Jacob has not forgotten, right? He may have been quiet up until this point. He may have let it kind of go without notice. It didn't make any comment, but he heard about it, and he knew about it. And he has held it up until this point in time, and now he pronounces his judgment on on Reuben. You will not have preeminence. You are not going to be the one who has the the privilege of being the firstborn. You are not going to get all the blessings that you might have thought are going to come to you because of what you have done. And think about this, because this is not just affecting Reuben. This is affecting all of Reuben's descendants after him, right? As you look at the way this transpires, if you look at history, Israel's history from here on out, Reuben never has preeminence. Reuben never is in charge. Reuben doesn't contribute to a judge. Reuben does not contribute to a king. Reuben does not contribute to a leader in any meaningful way. Reuben is gone. Reuben is done. And why? It's the sin of Reuben. It is Reuben's sin that brings this kind of pronouncement on the rest of his family, on his grandson, on his grandsons, on, on, on their grandsons after them, on their grandsons after that. This perpetuates, this continues because of the sin of one man. This is strikingly similar to what we saw earlier in the book of Genesis. When we looked at Noah's pronouncement of judgment on Canaan because of the deeds of his father, Ham. Because of what Ham did when he saw his father's nakedness and and treated him shamefully, because of that, Canaan and and his descendants bore the penalty of that forever, right? Reuben's sons and his grandsons and his descendants after him do much the same way because of the sin of their father, Reuben, because of what he did. Jacob has held off until this point, but now he's laying it out there, right? Reuben, you would have expected to be the firstborn. You would be expected to have the dignity. You would be expected to have the preeminence but I'm stripping it away from you. You were, you were uncontrolled as water. You could, not, uh, you could not keep that under control, and, and now you have lost it, right? So, so Reuben uh, walks away from this probably very dissatisfied, probably understandably so, right? He probably understands I've deserved this, right? This is what I brought on myself. Uh, but, but Reuben walks away having been stripped of, of what he would expect to be his. It takes us to verse 5 through verse 7, where we look at two brothers together, Simeon and, and Levi here. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel, nor let, let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob, 
and I will scatter them in Israel. We would kind of be uh, on the edge of our seats here at this point. If, if Reuben has, has lost the preeminence, right? If he, would, if he is the firstborn, he's, he's lost that privilege, we may start to wonder, well, who's next, right? The next logical candidates would be Simeon and Levi. They are the, they are the next oldest children of, of Leah. Uh, they are the next oldest children, right? So these are the individuals that you might think uh, would, would come later. But we see here that they don't get much of a, a much better treatment than, than Reuben will at this point in time. Uh, they are given a, a, a curse. They are given a, a judgment uh, for similar reasons as Reuben, but for a very different behavior. Um, Simeon and Levi have kind of passed off the scene ever since Genesis chapter 34. Genesis 34, we saw that Jacob, as he moved back into the land, as he brings his family back from, from the land of, of, of Padan Aram, where they had been, brings them back. They settled at, at a place called Shechem. Right? And there they, they kind of settled, they bought some land, they were kind of trying to, to make a life for themselves there. And next thing you know, Dinah catches the attention of, of the son uh, of the king of Shechem. Right? And everything goes to, uh, goes, to, to, goes to pot and it goes pretty quickly. Right? Things, just, things go poorly at this point in time. Right? Uh, Dinah is, is treated shamefully and the sons of Israel are mad about this. Right? You cannot do this to our, our, our sister, you cannot let this happen. And as we saw what happened, we see that there's a, there's a complicated plot that arises, right? Uh, there, there's kind of this negotiation that begins to take place. Well, you know, we'll, we'll let you have her uh, if you'd simply get circumcised. You know, you're not circumcised. You've got to be like the rest of us. If you do that, uh, then, then we'll let you have her. And, and the son and, and, his, and, and his father go back to the people and they say, well, look at this. We know we'll get their stuff. We'll let them live in the land. Everyone will be fine if we get circumcised. So we'll, we'll do this thing. And so th- this complicated conspiracy arises. And in the middle, of, in the aftermath of that, as it were, Simeon and Levi come on the scene and they kill every male that they can find, right? Enter into the city and just wipe everyone out, taking, taking hostages, uh, taking captive the, the, the women, uh, the, the, the children, the livestock, and everything that is, that is, at, that is with them, right? Uh, at the time, uh, Jacob expresses a great degree of frustration at what happened. Right? You have made me stink in the noses of the people that are around us. Right? Uh, Jacob and his family are not that big. Now, they may have a lot of livestock. They may have 12 sons. But they're nothing in comparison to these established cities that are sitting around this city. Right? The last thing that you want to do is, is, is to start stirring up trouble when you don't have enough people to keep the trouble up. Right? Now, God provides for them, and seemingly that's the end of things. Right? And they just kind of start moving their way back through the land. They begin doing exactly what, what Abraham had done and what Isaac had done. And you would think that perhaps this has also been swept under the rug. But has it been? No. Again, Jacob has not forgotten. Right? He has remembered what his sons have done. And he comes here and he pronounces judgment for what they have done. Right? Le- Simeon and Levi are brothers, verse 5. Their swords are implements of violence. Uh, these men have violent, angry tempers, and I don't want to be a part of it, right? He was, uh, Jacob was un, just displeased in Genesis chapter 34, and he's still displeased to this very day, right? Uh, the son's behavior was absolutely awful, right? It was bloodthirsty. It was, it was greedy in, in many respects. It was an awful display of what people should be looking like and how they should be living. And Jacob says, that this, this should never happen, right? This should not have happened. Verse 6, let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let, my glory, let not my glory be united with their assembly. Uh, Jacob almost seems to suggest that, that it is the brother's counsel that sparked all of this. 
Uh, when, when you look at the, the way that everything unfolds in Genesis 34, when the decision is made that we need to have these guys circumcised, it seems to be something that comes from all of the brothers together, right? Jacob almost seems to be kind of on the side, but, but the brothers together seem to suggest this. But the fact that Jacob is calling out their council, he's calling out their assembly, would almost suggest that it is these two men who were the architects of this situation, right? They said they must have been the ones that came up with this idea that if we can get these guys circumcised, then, we can, then we'll go ahead and say, oh, yeah, 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 we'll, we'll all come together there. But what are we going to do after that? We're going to kill them. They may have been the main ones who carried out the killing, but it was also their plan from the beginning to start this thing down this road. Right, do, and, and so do not let me uh, be entered into their council. Right? I don't want to be a part of their plans. If they're, if they're getting together and they're planning a party, I don't want to be there, right? If they're getting together and they're planning to get together, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be anywhere near these, near these individuals because of how they think, because of how they act. Because, end of verse 6, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. The men we understand in verse 6, right, uh, that they slew men in their anger. We have that recorded for us in Genesis 34. The oxen we don't have recorded in 34. Right? There's no, no mention of that. We, we see them driving off the livestock and, and enriching themselves in the process, but we don't see any accounts of them hamstringing any of their oxen. And, and why would you? What, what have the oxen done? Uh, chances are more likely that oxen here is, is meant to be parallel with men. Right? It is probably men that are being referred to, not oxen. Right? And so you think about what it is they did to bring them those men to the point where they could not defend themselves. They hamstrung them. Right? They, they absolutely weakened these men to the point where they couldn't do anything, and then they slew them. Right? This, is, this is murder in the first degree. That's exactly what this is. This is premeditated murder where you have planned out how you were going to carry this act out from start to finish, and then you went and you carried it out. Right? Uh, their, uh, their anger, their swords, their violence is on full display. Uh, they can plan it out, and they can execute it, and they have no trouble doing it, and they can do it quickly at that. Right? So verse 7 then, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. That was the motivation, right? That is what characterizes these two men. That, that's, what, that's what could bring them to a point where they could plan something like this and then carry it out in, in such a bold and such a bloodthirsty manner here, right? So cursed be that anger and that wrath, for it is cruel. And then comes the punishment in verse 7, right? Much as Reuben is stripped of his, of his privileges of being the firstborn, these individuals are going to be stripped as well, right? They're going to have privileges taken away from them. At the end of verse 7, I will disperse them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. As we look at Israel's future, as we think about what is coming to all of these tribes of Israel, they are promised that in 400 years they are going to leave the land of Egypt, and they are going to return to the land of Canaan. Right? God made that abundantly clear to, to Abraham. Uh, God then made it, has made it abundantly clear again to Jacob. This is, this is the plan. This is what is going to happen. And when they go and they start to re-enter the land, what's going to happen? Well, all these tribes are going to come in. They're going to take care of whoever is already living in the land. That's been, that's been pronounced as well, right? Until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. And then at that point in time, you're going to have to start divvying out the land. Right? Reuben's going to get a piece of land over here, and, and Benjamin's going to get a land over here, and Judah's going to get some land over here, and Ephraim's going to get some land over here, and you're going to begin to parcel that out. Right? Everyone should get what is their due, right? a piece of land in the land that they had been promised, the land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been promised. Right? This is what they're going to get. So what can we strip away from Simeon and Levi? We'll strip away their land. We'll strip away their identity. 
right? Where they're no longer something that could be recognized anymore, right? Where they, they, lose, they lose any sense of who they were. This is what is being promised here in Genesis uh, chapter 49, verse 7. I will disperse them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. Rather than having a big contiguous piece of land that they will, they will inherit and, and will be named after them, I'm going to kind of scatter them around in Israel. And as we look at Israel's history, this is exactly what happens to these two tribes. Simeon is given a piece of land that, as you look at the borders of it, it falls solidly within the land of Judah. The land that is given to Judah is, is, is literally uh, uh, all around them. They are, and they are just given this piece of land that is in between there. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks in, in Sunday school. Uh, Simeon disappears completely from the map, as it were. Right? Even when you start to think about the tribes that make up the two nations, as Israel and, and Judah split after the death of Solomon, you're only described as having two tribes in the south. But what do you really have? You have three tribes. You, you, have, you have Benjamin, you have Judah, and you have Simeon, which is living inside of Judah's boundaries. But Simeon is no longer mentioned. It's as if Simeon has simply ceased to exist, right? They're still down there. They still have that land, but their identity has basically been wiped away. They have been completely engulfed and completely consumed by Judah. They are scattered. They are dispersed, right? They no longer have that identity. They no longer have a privilege of, of looking back and saying, we are the, we're the people of Simeon. Everyone kind of goes, Simeon who? Right? You don't even think about them after, uh, after that point in time. Right? They're, they're completely go- gone. And this is what Jacob is promising. Right? This is what God is promising I'm going to do. Why? Because of what Simeon did. Right? One man's sin has brought this consequence upon the rest of his descendants after him. Now what about Levi? Levi has the exact same thing happen. A different way, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But the exact same thing happens. Levi is never given a piece of land that they could call their own. They don't get, they don't get boundaries and say, well, this, this belongs to you right here, and you're going to be bordered by this tribe, and this tribe will be down over here, and this tribe will be on that side, and this tribe will be on that side. You don't get that. Levi is scattered in Israel. They get cities all over the place, right? And there is never a place that is called the land of Levi, right? They are, they are scattered. Now, they're redeemed, and we'll talk about that here in a minute, but they are scattered exactly as God promised that they would. They would not have a contiguous piece of land that they could look at here. And this takes us back again and reminds us of, of the, part of the character of God. Because remember, this is not just Jacob pronouncing what is coming back. This is not just Jacob coming back and settling scores. This is, this is a prophecy, right? This is what God is saying is going to happen. And it reminds you very much of what God describes himself in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. As God is revealing himself to Moses, and Moses is struggling because Moses is having a hard time out there in the wilderness. And as God reveals himself to this, he says this, The Lord passed by in front of them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressing and sin, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What Jacob is pronouncing, as hard as it may seem, what Noah pronounced on Canaan, as hard as it was back there in Genesis 9, what God did to, what God did to this, the descendants of Adam and Eve, us, that is consistent with his character. Right, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Children after the sins of their father still have to deal with the consequences of the sins of their father. 
And this is being born out in Reuben. This is being born out in Simeon. This is being born out in Levi, right? There is a judgment that is being passed on these men, and it is going down to their children and to their grandchildren and to their descendants after them, right? That consequence is being felt. That consequence is real, right? And this is in keeping and in character with, the, with who God is, right? He pronounces it as such to Moses. This is who I am. And that's important for us, right? Because that's the only way that we also get redemption, right? Is if also through one man, redemption can come. But it is hard, right? And you are seeing this lived out in these, in these three individuals right here, right? As all three of them are, are marched off the scene, as it were, uh, because, of their, uh, because of their sin. This is judgment, right? Judgment is being announced on these, on these children because of their this sin. But there's also redemption that has taken place. And I pick back up again with Levi because Levi is that example of redemption that, that takes place here. Uh, Levi gets this judgment that is passed on him in verse 7, right? You are going to be uh, dispersed in Jacob. You are going to be scattered in Israel. And we find that this is exactly what happens to Levi, right? They get cities over here. They get cities over here. But this is all that they get, right? Levi's fate would have been exactly the same as Simeon under these circumstances if nothing had changed. Right? Uh, Levi probably would have been given a territory. Maybe it would have been inside Ephraim. Who knows where it would have been, right? But the exact same thing would have happened to Levi. You would have never heard of Levi ever again, right? Would have been nothing. Nothing to, nothing to think of, right? But that doesn't happen. You think about Levites all the time, don't you? Why? What happens? They're under judgment in verse 7. What happens? If you move forward to, to Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read there for the scripture reading. You can turn there if you want. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33, Moses is blessing the children of Israel here. This is as Moses is getting ready to, to pass off the scene. Right? And so he, in turn, pronounces his blessings, his, his prophecies concerning uh, what is going to happen to the children of Israel. And you find that his prophecy looks very different than what you see with Jacob. Something has happened. Something has changed. Right? Uh, verse 8 of Deuteronomy chapter 33. Of Levi he said, Let your Thuman and your Urim belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massah, with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons. For they observed your word and they kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and put and whole burnt offerings on the altar. O Lord, bless his substance and accept the work of his hands. Shatter the loins of those who rise up against him and those who hate him, so they will not rise up again. Levi is given a place of preeminence in Israel. Right? They are going to be the ones, it says there in, in verse 10, who are going to teach Jacob. Right? They are going to teach the commandments of God to Jacob. They are going to be the ones, end of verse 10, who are, who are offering sacrifices and offering incense to God. Right? Why do they get this privilege? Why, does this, why do they get blessed in this capacity? It's because of what you see in verse 9. Who said of his father and mother, I did not consider them, and did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons. For they observed your word and kept your covenant. What is, what is Moses talking about? He's talking about what happened in Exodus chapter 32, verses 25 through 29. As Moses is sitting up there on the, on, on the mount, and he's getting the commandments of God, God comes to him and says, do you know what the children of Israel are doing down there? They've got this golden image that they're worshiping, right? You need to get down there, and you need to stop this. 
And so what does Moses do? He gets off the, off the mountain. He starts making his way down. And sure enough, what are they doing? They're dancing around this golden calf, right, that Aaron has made for them, right? As Moses comes down off the mountain, he cries out, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And who rallies to Moses at this moment? It's not Judah. It's not Reuben. It's not Simeon. It's Levi, right? Uh, Levi straps on their swords. They pull out their swords, and Moses says, you kill everyone that is engaged in this worship, and you kill them now. And this is what you see in verse 9. Who said of his father and his mother, I do not consider them, and did not acknowledge his brothers. At this point in time, that those, anyone who was found worshiping that was that, of that idol was considered an enemy and worthy of destruction. And that's exactly what Levi did, right? They redeemed themselves through obedience, right? It was disobedience that brought them the judgment. It was disobedience that brought them the curse. It was obedience that brought them blessing. It was obedience that brought them a privilege and a place here in Israel. Levi is a source, is a picture of redemption that has taken place here. They deserve exactly the same fate as Simeon. They deserve to be scattered, and they still will be scattered, but they're scattered in a different way. They're scattered in a way that is still recognizable. They're even scattered in a way that brings blessing to others. Their cities become the cities of refuge. If someone kills someone accidentally, where do you go? You go to one of the cities of the Levites, and they are strategically placed so that just that thing happens. The children of Levi become the ones who are sitting in Jerusalem, and they are sitting there at the temple of God, and they are offering sacrifices, and, they are, and, and, they're, and, they're, and it is their sons who are, who are priests and who are serving before God. They get a remarkably different fate than Simeon, even though they are still scattered, because redemption occurred to the tribe of Levi because of their obedience. Right? There, there is a picture of redemption that is taking place. Just because you have fallen under the curse, just because there is a judgment that is pronounced against you, does not mean that that redemption is, is impossible from there on out. Levi is an example of that. They emerge from this still scattered, but not left to the same fate as Simeon, who is utterly lost, who is utterly forgotten about and no longer remembered because of obedience. Uh, redemption is possible, right? And the tribe of Levi proves that. There's another tribe that, that proves that redemption is possible. And this is mentioned in Genesis 49. So if you go back there with me. And this is the tribe of Judah. This is the tribe of, of Judah. <clears throat> Judah also is given a significant uh, amount of attention here in this passage. And it, and it makes sense. And we'll look at him also in, in two different lights. But here we see him as a, as a form of redemption. Genesis chapter 49 verse 8. When looking at Judah, Jacob says this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your, your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies, down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his fold to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Uh, Judah is the fourth son to be mentioned, and appropriately, he is the fourth in line. right? And so as we are looking at, at Reuben having lost his preeminence, and then we look at Simeon and Levi also being kind of struck off the list, the last person that you would expect to get at that point is then Judah. And Judah gets exactly what Reuben probably should have, uh, minus the double portion, which, which goes to, to Joseph. You notice here that Reuben's uh, pronouncement that is given to him, it is a true blessing in every sense of the word, 
right? There is no sense of the curse that you see with Reuben. There is no sense of the judgment that you see with Simeon and Levi for what they have done. And that's remarkable, isn't it? Look at, look at who Judah has been throughout all of this time that we have seen him in, in the book of Genesis. Uh, this is the man who lost two of his sons because their sins were so great against God that he killed them. Uh, this is the man who accidentally got, got his daughter-in-law pregnant uh, because he thought she was a harlot that was sitting on the side of the road and whom he should have given to his third son but chose not to do it. Uh, Judah is the one who went out and married a, a Canaanite woman to begin with when he shouldn't have had any business doing that. Judah is the one who instigated selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites and sent him down to Egypt. Is Judah worthy of what he gets here in verses 8 through 12? I would argue Judah is not worthy of that, right? Uh, Judah is in many ways exactly the same as Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Uh, they, are, they are united in their sin. They are united in a, mu- a number of offenses that they have committed against God. And yet what happens to Judah? Judah is blessed, right? Where does this come from? It seems to come primarily from the way that Judah turns things around as he deals with Joseph, right? As we are trying to get Benjamin, we're trying to take Benjamin down uh, to Egypt because that is the only way we are going to get grain. What does Judah step up to do? He steps up and says, I will be surety for Benjamin's life, right? Everything that he has done up until this point, the disregard that he has had for his, his brothers, the disregard that he has had for his father, begins to turn around and Joseph and Jacob pardon me Judah all these Js and Judah begins to live away in a life that is actually pleasing pleasing to his father and arguably pleasing to God as well as he accepts some kind of responsibility for what he has done and trying to turn these things around to do what is right Judah also serves as a picture of redemption here in many ways he is just as awful as Simeon and Levi he is just as awful as Reuben now, these are all boys who have had serious issues in their lives and have, and have committed sin And yet Judah inherits a blessing, right, because of obedience. If it is possible to be judged because of disobedience, it is also possible to be blessed because of obedience. And Judah bears that out. Judah exemplifies that, coming away with a blessing where you would expect him to come away with a curse. He is also a picture of redemption that takes place in this this passage here. right? So we have seen justice as God is announcing justice on Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Uh, We have seen redemption in the life of Judah, and later on, as we continue to see that in the life of Levi. The third thing that we see in this passage is that of providence. Providence. And as you'd expect, we've got two tribes that we'll we'll look at for that as well. The first tribe that I want to look at in terms of providence is is Joseph, down in verse 22 of of chapter 49. Uh, Joseph is given uh, far more attention, uh, really, than everyone else, with perhaps all kind of matched with, with Judah there. Uh, Joseph has already been promised that he's going to get a double portion there in 48, right? Uh, Joseph, uh, Jacob is essentially adopting Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own two children, right? Uh, in essence, taking Joseph's portion uh, and giving it to one and then also giving another portion to, to another one of these sons, right? So, so we expect here in chapter 49 that Joseph's blessing is going to be rich and Jacob does not disappoint, right? He, he flowers him uh, with blessings in this passage. Verse 22, we read this. Uh, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the son of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, 
blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of one distinguished among his brothers. Does Joseph get a good blessing? Oh, absolutely. Joseph is walking away with a lion's share of everything right here, right? Exactly as Jacob had promised in chapter 48, right? You are getting a double portion here. This blessing is rich. And I have no doubt that Reuben walked away rather mad uh, when he gets to hear what Joseph is getting here in this passage, right? Uh, Joseph is beginning to be compared in verse 22 to what to, many of your translations will have, and I think most will have, a, a fruitful bow there. Now, you may wonder with me, as you look at verses 22 and 23, uh, why do we have a fruitful bow that is being attacked by archers? Does that not seem a little odd? Right? How often do you see archers running around just shooting at trees and angry? Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It's quite possible that what the way this should be translated is rather than a fruitful bow, this should be a uh, the, the foal of a wild donkey. Okay, and I know that sounds remarkably different, uh, but if you take Hebrew and you start to look at pointings, this makes sense. Okay, uh, this probably is meant to be something like that, and I and I would uh, I would submit this is probably correct because as you look through all of these blessings that are being given to these sons animal imagery comes up far more often than anything else, right? We've already seen Judah is, is being compared to a, to a lion's whelp here. Uh, Issachar, verse 14, is a, is, is a strong donkey. Uh, Dan is coming up like a serpent in verse uh, 17 there. Uh, Naphtali is, is a doe in, in verse 21. Uh, Benjamin is going to be compared to a wolf in verse 27. Uh, Jacob seems to be skewing more towards animal imagery uh, than he does to be plant imagery here. So I think it is more likely here that, that, that Judah, uh, ben Joseph then is being compared to a, the, the, the foal of a wild donkey. If we run with that in verse 22, then we end up with something more like this. Uh, Joseph is the foal of a wild donkey, the foal of a wild donkey at a spring, the foal of a wild donkey by a rocky rim. Right, so the imagery that begins to be presented is this, a, this is a, a cult of a wild donkey. It's not going to be fully, fully grown. It's going to be young yet, right? tender, something that is vulnerable. He's either sitting there by a, by a spring or he's, he's on some kind of rocky outcropping, so the rim of a, of a plateau somewhere. And so when the archers see him, what do they do? Well, we can kill this thing, right? Let's, let's get this thing, right? And so that's where verse 23 comes in, right? The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, right? We're talking about desert hunting that is taking place here, right? Uh, you're going to be doing this from a distance, and you're going to be trying to get him up there on that rim or, or looking at him down there at that spring. You're going to try to, to kill this animal. Have they been able to be successful? No. This animal, though, is defenseless. Uh, though it is vulnerable, uh, though it is young, though it is tender, is going to be preserved. It's going to be kept. It's going to allow it to be stay alive, right? Because in verse 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. It was not uh, any of Joseph's craftiness. It was not because of Joseph's strength. It was not because of Joseph's intelligence that he has endured the attacks of everyone that has come out against him. His brothers have come out against him. Potiphar and his wife have come out against him. Uh, the baker and, and, and the butler have forgotten about him and left him in jail. They have, they have neglected and abandoned him. Time and time again, he has been left in positions where he is helpless. Time and time again, he has been under attack. But God has been the one who has been preserving him all this time. Right? This has been providence on display. Every, every step of the way, despite the sorrow, despite the pain, despite the adversity that has come his way, the Almighty God has been shepherding him along. 
The Almighty God has been strengthening his, his arms. It's as if the Almighty at this point was standing behind Joseph as he has his bow bent, and he could just kind of wraps his arms around him and continues to hold it alongside him, right? His, his strength endures. He is able to continue to pull back that bow because of what the Almighty has done for him, right? Uh, Joseph is that ultimate example of what providence looks like. Right? Someone that should have fallen long ago. Someone that should have been just drowned in a pit of despair, but still managed to emerge on top. It's not a feel-good story. It is God's grace that is on display. Right? That is what is taking place uh, on Joseph. And Jacob is recognizing this here. Right? Right? But his bow remained from, from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. The shepherd the stone of Israel. Uh, Jacob has already referred to God in this way. You look back in Genesis 48, and you look at it in verse 15. We looked at this two weeks ago, right? When Jacob is looking back and he's thinking about everything that God has done for him, and he's reflecting on where he has been. End of verse 15. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, right? Again, Jacob understood what this looks like. Jacob has been a shepherd all of his life. He has has herded livestock all of his life. He understands the care that has to be given. He understands the the cost that that looks like. He ascribed that to himself in Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. And now he looks at, 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 at Joseph in chapter 49, verse 24, and says, I know why you're still preserved. It's the exact same reason that I am still preserved, right? It is because the shepherd who has been shepherding the children of Israel all of this time he is the one who has kept you. He has been that stone. He has been that, that rock, right? He has been the mighty one that has preserved us. And I think at this point, Jacob is, is largely looking forward as well, right? If his sons are going to continue to thrive, if his sons are going to become the people that they're going to become, how is it going to take place? Is it going to be their sons, you know, good deeds? Look at Reuben and Simeon and Levi. I doubt it. Right? Is it going to be their craftiness? Is it going to be their, their physical numbers? Now, I think Joseph, I think Jacob, even at this point, is, is looking at Joseph, but I think he's looking at all of his sons and he's looking forward and saying, if these children are going to continue to thrive, if their descendants are going to continue to thrive, it's going to have to be because the Almighty is shepherding them. Right? He is moving them along. He is, he is getting them to where they need to be. It's possible that in verse 18, this is what he's getting at, even though we're talking about Dan here, as, as Jacob seems to express, for your salvation I wait, O Lord. It's as if Jacob is looking and saying, this is, this is, this is who we're looking for, right? It's not Dan, it's not, it's not Judah, it's not Reuben, it's not Joseph, it's not all of these tribes. It is you that we are waiting for. It is you that must move. It is you that must provide. It is you that must uh, give these people what they need in order for them to continue to thrive, right? That is what must take place. You see that echoed in Deuteronomy chapter 33, right? As, we, as Ben read this morning, as we look at that blessing of, of, that Moses gives, he describes underneath being the everlasting arms of God, right? That is who has been carrying Israel. That is who has been shepherding Israel throughout all of the wilderness wanderings. And it is him who will continue to do that, right? Uh, Jacob is looking at, Judah's, uh, at Joseph's life and saying, he has done this for you. He looked back in in chapter 48 and said, he has done this to me. And he is looking forward and saying, he will continue to do this. It is the providence of God. It is the goodness of God. It is the grace of God that will do this and and nothing else. It It cannot be my sons and it cannot be the descendants after them. So Joseph is an example of providence. But go back with me back again to to verse 8 to look at Judah. 
Because Judah is not only an example of redemption, but Judah is also an example of this providence as well. We read the verses already, and you will, you will have noticed as we read those verses, verses 8 through 12, there is a, there is a, a tone of conquest that is present with, with Judah. Uh, you look at the end of verse um, 8, verse 1, your brothers shall praise you. End of verse 1, your father's son shall bow down to you. Right? Judah, Judah will emerge as, as the king. Judah will emerge as, as the leader of, of the tribes. Okay? Uh, you'll notice in the middle of verse 8 there, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Right? He is pictured as being someone who is successful in, in, in victory, successful in battle. Uh, like a lion, you would look at him sitting over there, and would you want to mess with that? You would not. Right? Let, let him lie. <laughs> let's, let's leave him alone. Right? He's the lion's whelp there at the beginning. He's already, even though he's yet a cub, right? he's yet a young lion, he's already getting his prey. He's already a successful hunter, and he will become only more so as the year has gone on. Right? This is someone who is going to conquer. Uh, this is someone who is, who is going to win. Uh, then in verse 10, we go from that, that tone of conquest to something that is a little more concrete. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. At verse 10, we're told that the shepherd shall not depart from, from, from Judah. Uh, the scepter is going to be the sign of kingship. It's going to represent a king, right? A king wields a scepter. A scepter. Right? He, he is the one that has that in possession, right? And it shall not depart from Judah, right? Uh, this has been given to Judah, and that privilege will never depart from Judah, right? They will continue to have that privilege. A king will come from Judah. Uh, many of your translations will handle this next part a little bit differently, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Uh, some of your uh, translations indicate that a lawgiver uh, from between his feet. Uh, the idea that is present there is that, is that he will continue to bear children who will also then inherit that role of a lawgiver, right? Uh, I think more likely it should be the staff, but, but you can take that wording either which way, right? Uh, the idea, again, is though this, this rule shall continue, right? Either the staff will never depart from his feet, from between his feet, or the descendants will never end, in which case the rule continues, right? This is, uh, this is a perpetual kingship that is, that is being promised here. Then at the end of verse 10 uh, comes arguably one of the most difficult passages to translate in this, in this chapter, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. Um, most every translation that I looked at this week has until Shiloh comes, I believe except for uh, the ESV, which is the only one that I see a difference in. Um, there's a number of ways of, of trying to handle this phrase, but I do think that the ESV probably does the best. It says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, other translations have subscribed until what is due comes to him, uh, which also goes back to the idea of, of tribute. The imagery that we are getting here is not just that this is a king that is ruling in Judah, but this is a great king that is ruling in Judah. Uh, this is a king that the nations and the peoples that are around Judah, that are around Israel, recognize his greatness and bow to his greatness. They send him money, right, because they want to remain on his good side. That is, that is part of their service. They yield obedience to him, right? You'll notice end of verse 10, it's the obedience of the peoples. This is different from what you saw in verse 8, when your father's sons will bow down to you. This is peoples. 
right? These, these are nations that are surrounding Israel, nations that are surrounding Judah. They look at the greatness of this king that is ruling in Judah, and they send their money, and they yield their obedience, right? If he says something, we're going to do it. We fall under his protection. We fall under his rule. We fall under his, uh, his leadership because his power is so great, because his glory is so significant. They will give him everything that they have, right? Now, this starts to call in mind David and Solomon, right? This is the first time that you see that kind of an imagery that is coming out, right? David, in his rule, becomes a great king. Solomon takes it to yet another level, right, where he has, he has nations and, and kings and peoples that are, that are coming to him. They're, they're sending tribute. Uh, they're sending uh, the Queen of Sheba herself comes, right, to see his glory and, and to listen to him and to hear what he has to say. They are in awe of him. But does that continue forever? Does it continue in unbroken chain? Do you see a, a king in Judah right now? You do not. I submit that David and Solomon are a very good picture of what this is illustrating. But David and Solomon are not the ultimate representation of what is being described here. Right? The ultimate representation of what can be described here is in Revelation 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Right? We talked about Judah being a lion there in verse 9. And Revelation so wisely picks that up. Right, The lion of the tribe of Judah. No one else has ever been called that. No one else has ever deserved that title. No one else would ever deserve that title than the son himself. Right, Greater than David. Greater than Solomon. With, with a rule that will stretch to the very ends of the earth. Where tribute will flow into Jerusalem like streams, we are told in the Old Testament. Because that is what is due. That is what is right where nations will send their obedience to him coming up. And if they don't come up, curses will be upon their land, right? These are the promises that attend the Messiah. These are the promises that attend to the Christ. These are the promises that attend to the Son, Jesus Christ himself, right? This is who Jacob is talking about here in this passage. He is looking far into the future. He is looking past David. He is looking past Solomon. Honestly, they are blips on the radar, they are, they are great in their time, but they are nothing compared to what is to come. Nothing compared to the Christ. And what greater form of providence can be given than in him? Him, A, a providence that not only blesses the tribe of Judah, a, a providence that not only blesses the children of Israel, but a providence that blesses the entire world. A blessing, a grace that is given to the entire world, right? That is what is being described in this passage. He is looking at the Christ and he is describing the benefits of his reign. He is describing the greatness of his reign. And it comes, remember, from a tribe that's been redeemed itself. From a man who's been redeemed himself comes the greatest form of redemption that we could possibly consider, Jesus Christ himself, right? This is who, this is who Jacob is looking forward to. And it takes me back to Romans chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, when, when Paul is describing uh, what this looks like, and he's, he's thinking about his, uh, his own kinsmen. And he said in verse 3 through 5 of Romans chapter 9, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoptions as sons, and the glory and the covenants of the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises, Whose are the Father, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Israel serves as that channel. Israel has served as that channel. 
they received many benefits, right? You see where he talks about the, the glory of the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service. You're thinking about Levi, aren't you? Right? The, the blessings that have attributed to Levi. But from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all? Right? The greatest thing that has been given through the children of Israel has been Christ, right? And that came through the tribe of Judah, right? And Jacob looks at that and says, This is coming. Right? This is coming. This is the greatest providence that God could ever give. This is the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen. This is the person, this is the thing that we need the most. And it's coming through Judah. Right? Someone who's not worthy of it. Right? Someone who doesn't deserve for this to be true of them. But this is who it is going to come through. Right? This is providence. Not just for Judah, not just for Israel, but for all mankind, for all of the world. Right? The promises that Jacob are thinking about here are stretching far into the future. And so as we look at these sons, we see themes that are going on here, right? We see judgment, right? There are consequences that are taking place, right, because of individual sin. We see that there is redemption that is taking place through obedience. And we see providence that is taking place as well. And it is all being wrapped up, I think, chiefly in the form of, in the person of Christ, right? If you are looking at the one who is going to redeem you from judgment, it is by one man's obedience, Right? And only one man's obedience. If you were looking to describe the gospel, you could do it through this chapter. And it all centers and focuses on Christ. Right? The center of this passage is Christ. Much as the center of all of Genesis has been up until this point. Right? We are focusing on Christ. And so as we think through this passage, as you think about what is going on in these prophecies, do not forget Christ here. He is present. He is being screamed out in many respects as we look forward to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, Father, I, I think this is another one of those passages that is, that is easy to, to kind of overlook, uh, that kind of becomes a long ago, far away, uh, maybe becomes something that is uh, interesting historically, uh, Father, and there's certainly plenty of things that you could draw into it. Uh, but Father, if we walked away and, and we do not see you in this passage, we, we are missing everything. Uh, you are the one that has been preserving these sons throughout all of their days. You are the one that preserved Jacob. You have been that shepherd who, is, who has been moving them along, sheltering them, feeding them, providing for them, Father. And you continue to use that people for exactly that purpose, uh, to bring Christ, the one who ultimately brings redemption, uh, the one who ultimately brings rule, uh, the one who is that fountain of grace for all. Uh, Father, we come and, 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 and we cannot help but see you in this passage, and we praise you for that much as, as Jacob is doing that here and in chapter 48 as well. So, Father, may we praise you for that here this morning. May we, uh, may we see what your son is. Uh, may we see what he has done. May we reflect on what is coming, uh, Father, as we look forward uh, to the promises there in, in, in this chapter. Give us grace for this, Father. Jesus, name I pray.